0: Uh, hey, if you will, uh, Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, Philippians uh, chapter 1. And really, quite honestly, I think this is, this is helpful in many ways by God's providence. Um, a little bit of a setup for this is uh, Paul is writing to, he's talking to uh, this group of people that, uh, that he's really close to. And that he's actually, and he'll use these words as we read the text this morning, that he's partnered in the gospel with. In the same relationship that, that Paxton and Colby have worked together as a part of our worship team, Paul's going to describe the partnership that he has with these other believers in the gospel. And one of the wildest things is, is that in so many ways, look, Colby and I don't have the, the same name. In, in the, the way the world would look at us, we'd not be family right we we'd be more akin to something as friends and while that's true from a relational human perspective something deeper is the reality that if you and I are in Christ together we're actually truly family and so what we're going to read this morning you're actually going to see some some you're going to pick up on some you're going to see some notes in the scripture in the text this morning that would reveal that the way Paul talks to this church is not that they're the church that he planted ages ago, and they're down the road, and he's got some things in common with them. He's going to talk to them with this really deep emotion because he realizes, he understands that they're actually, because of union with Christ, family with one another. Philippians 1 is where we're going to be today, specifically verses 1 through 11, as we start a new series this week called Gospel Humility. Um, One of the most incredible things about Paul's writing to the church at Philippi is the way that not only he starts the letter and describes what it means to be humble, he presents this model servant picture of humility. But then he also, in the very central portion of this text, specifically in chapter 2 beginning in verse 6 and kind of moving through 11 onward, you get this incredible picture of humility the identity of Christ, who he is, and what he's done for us. And just as we sung a a, a minute ago, looking through suffering to the other side, everything builds toward these verses in chapter 2 and from them in the sense that what we find there is that it is Jesus who takes the form of a servant and is obedient to death, even death on a cross, that's the biblical description of him looking to the other side, of staying there and caring and bearing the weight of not just my sin and your sin, but the sins of the entire world. Um, and look, I, I, th- I think one of the things that's really important as we dive into uh, a new book is to understand um, the why and the what. So here's the why. We've been working uh, for quite some time uh, to really encourage one another uh, and to invite each other into a place where we could have a better understanding. And hear me when I say this. I don't, I don't mean just cerebrally. I don't mean like in, from an intelligence standpoint, but a better understanding, a better picture of, a heart picture of, an understanding of God's Word as a whole. And so one of the healthiest ways that we can do that is to look at books of Scripture one at a time. To take this one place, this one group of people, this one setting, this one context, and draw from it all of the incredible things that are happening there in that moment. So that is the why of why we're launching to a series where we look at Philippians. So over the next few weeks, that's where we're going to find ourselves. And I would encourage you, each of you, all of you, even family time might be over dinner, quiet time, spend time in this book consistently over the next few weeks. Look at the book of Philippians. Um, I also think it's really important, before we jump into the text today, to give you some background, uh, to understand historically uh, what's happening in this place. Uh, Because when I say Philippi, you are going to—I think that sounded like it was going to be a chant. I say Philippi, you say that's not what we were doing there. Um, But when I say Philippi, you think of it as this biblical city, this biblical place— And yet you might not know a ton about it. This is uh, some background to the letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. This is what happens. It's early 60s likely, uh, and not 1960s, like the 60s, like the first 60s. Um, Paul writes from Rome uh, to those who were Christians there. Now this is one of the earliest Christian communities that exist. This is one of the earliest places in Europe where Paul ultimately was able to preach the gospel in a Christian community is established. It is a Roman colony that's in Macedonia. And if you want to look back into the scriptures to see where this comes from, look no further than Acts chapter 16. If you go back to Acts 16, you're going to get this, uh, this picture of, this understanding of, as Luke writes, what's happening in this place, Philippi. It, it is this, it's this region that's inside a larger region called Macedonia, and is predominantly Roman culturally. So one of the things that you probably notice as we've read the Scriptures lately is you see Paul in, in the New Testament making all these Old Testament allusions He's using all of this Old Testament language and specifically citing some Old Testament verses and references to the Old Testament so that his hearers can understand. And that's because when he's doing that, he's writing to to audiences that include people of a Jewish background. The unique thing about this passage, and not only this passage that's set up, but the entirety of Philippians, you're not going to find that too often because this is mostly a Greco-Roman culture that he's writing to. It is mostly a city filled with people who are Gentiles. We don't even have historical evidence, really, of a synagogue or a Jewish place of worship here. It is predominantly a Gentile community, and here's why. This was an area that that Rome has taken control of, and they've set a ton of retired soldiers and their families to live in this area. So that's who makes this up. It's all of these people that that used to work in in so many ways in the Roman guard, and the Praetorian guard, and Paul's going to describe this. All of these people who used to be a part of the Roman military have now settled in this place. And all of this stuff at this point sounds like, hey, I mean, I like history too, Michael, but where are we going with this? All right, here's the thing. It's really, really important to understand this background. Here's why. Paul is writing to people who are surrounded with this imperialistic and national identity. Everybody in Philippi that has come from Rome is ultimately, their whole life is characterized by their allegiance, their love for Rome itself. So I want you to think And I mean this very seriously, of someone whose entire life, their entire being, their identity, everything that would make them who they are, is wrapped up in a culture of where they're from. Now it's healthy and it's great to be thankful for the places from which we we come and the places which we reside, but this goes further than that. So much so That these people, these soldiers, and all the people that lived there were really involved in basically emperor worship. This would be the equivalent of us worshiping people in the government. Now, I know many of you, and I have conversations with you, and quite often somebody will send me your Facebook post, and I know you don't worship the people who are in our government. All right? I'm not worried about that with you right now. However, what's happening here. As Paul is Paul saying, these people are building their identity. The people around you are building their identity on something that doesn't last. This kingdom, these places that will fall. This is a little mini-Rome, and Paul is writing to the Christian community there, and this is what he's saying. That in a world and in a place that finds its identity in something so temporary, as a kingdom, as an earthly kingdom, Jesus Christ is the true king, and he is the one who is our identity and should order our life. Here's the other thing. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he doesn't write in, like in, in some of the letters we've looked at recently with Jude and, and 1 John and some of the things Paul will write to, to different churches. He doesn't write to them with warnings about false teachers, that's not really what's in his view. This is, a, this is, quite frankly, a very faithful community. But he writes to them to encourage them to stay the course, to press on, to persevere, to trust in, continually believing the gospel and living its reality and living it out. He also does so with deep humility. This book will teach us that the defining mark of the Christian is of humility. Humility is of one who believes in the gospel so deeply that we trust not in ourselves, but in Christ for all. And this is a very different way than the world around exists. I think there's a lot of parallels to the world in which we live and this world itself. The world that Paul describes in Philippians, the places that he describes. There are places in which people find their identity and all sorts of things that are built around the culture they exist in. And Paul says, wait, speak into the lives of others. Live the gospel life that is so different. And he teaches us how to live humble lives in response to the gospel. All right, that being said, with a little bit of background, uh, let's jump into the text. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It says this. that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord in which we say, Thanks be to God. All right, so beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to all the saints in the Christian community. He begins this language, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of God, right? But He begins this with it was framing it as, hey, it's Timothy and I, but everything you're going to see in Philippians is re- very much written in first person. So what we don't need to infer from this is that Paul and Timothy are co-writing this together. Instead, what we need to see is that while he is in what Paul calls, and we'll talk about this more, his imprisonment in Rome the place from which he writes the letter, that Timothy, in so many ways, is still with him. He's actually comforting him, he's actually ministering to him, but it's Paul who is the sole author of this work. And then he uses this really particular phrase when he describes he and Timothy and their relationship, not only to the church, but really to the Lord himself. He says that they are servants that they're servants. That might sound normal, that might even sound biblical in so many ways, but if you read through the epistles, if you read through the letters, all the communication that takes place between or in the New Testament, one of the things you're going to see is that Paul will quite often describe himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to do that typically when he needs to create an understanding of his authority to speak the truth of the gospel to the people that he's writing. In this place, you've got faithful believers. For a group of people who's trusted in Christ, he's not writing to them and and trying to convince them that he's an apostle. They know that in the sense that he's founded this place in so many ways in the Christian community that exists there. What he does say, however, is that he's a servant or a slave. He uses this language really, really intentionally because he wants to model servant leadership. He wants to describe what it means to be in total submission to the Lord. That the way of the Christian life is not that Christ is the first priority amongst a lot of priorities, not that his faith matters a great deal to him, but that Christ is his very life so much so. That what he considers to be reality is not the bondage or the chains that he's in and the imprisonment we read about in verse 7. Not that he's imprisoned in Rome. That's not what he's really a slave to. More than that, he's a slave to Jesus Christ himself. That's the deep reality from which Paul writes. And he's also teaching from the outset what the life of the believer looks like in contradiction to the world that exists around us. I want to read you a quote from this brilliant guy. His name's Ben Witherington. He's done a ton of socio-rhetorical work uh, in a lot of New Testament places, particularly Philippians and First and 2 Peter. Uh, but he writes and he kind of describes the background setting for us of what it would be like to be called a slave or to call oneself a slave in this era. And this is what he says. While many Greco-Romans would despise, and see as shameful being called a slave or servant in light of the character and example of Christ, the title takes on just the opposite nuance. It is an honor because Christ took it upon himself. So when Paul calls himself and he calls Timothy and he calls these people who are shepherds and leaders, believers, he doesn't say, we are incredibly important and listen to us. We are deeply needed as a part of all this. No, what does he say? He says, I'm a servant. I'm a slave. That's how I view myself in relationship to the Lord. I'm one who's in total subjection to all that Christ says, all that Christ commands me to do. I long to be obedient because all that I am is wrapped up in him. This is markedly different from the Greco-Roman world in which everyone is trying to create a name for themselves and identity. It's absolutely different from the world that you and I exist in. The world where everyone around us is seeking not only to keep up with the Joneses, but to be a better version of whatever Jones they see. To try to find the place where they fit in the world. And by fit... They mean stand out in such a way that the world would revere them and look upon them and see them as a person of power or fame or money or importance. And Paul says the life of the Christian looks nothing like that. It looks like one in which we consider ourselves to be so devoted to Jesus Christ that we actually find true freedom... And being a slave to what he commands and what he tells us to do. Look into verse 1 and you'll see this as well. Paul describes overseers, those elders and deacons there. In the midst of this, what he's doing is not just describing the function of those, of those offices of the church. He's also beginning to speak in this connotation of servants. What he's doing is saying, hey, these are people of character. The church is organized in such a way. These ought to be people that you look to who, who in an emblematic way, demonstrate themselves very much so as servants of God. And then he writes and he directs this letter to all the saints. To all the saints. So it's for all believers that are there. So when we read things like that, it's it's not just something that we infer, it's something that we can truly accept that this writing that, that was written, let's be very clear, it was not written to us. It was written to the church at Philippi, but as a part of God's word, it is for us. And it is for all saints, saints like you and me, so that we can understand the incredible truths that God has given us in his scriptures. He writes this to all the saints, and when he does that, that language that he uses, all the saints, doesn't just mean all the people who walk in the church doors at 9 a.m. and 1045. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that you are set-apart ones. That word saint uses the same kind of connotation as holy, Is people that are set apart. Why are they set apart? Because it says in verse two as well, or in verse one and two, that they are in Christ Jesus. They're apart of the body specifically. So Richard preached on this last week wonderfully and helped us see the picture that Paul paints in First Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's trying to re-correct. He's trying to help them understand the things that they don't. They're taking advantage of one another. They're not loving each other. In First Corinthians 11, people are coming to the Lord's Supper and they're literally using it as a meal to feed their bodies rather than seeing any spiritual significance in it. And they're treating people poorly. They're the poor, the marginalized, who are not loved at this meal. And Paul goes in in 1 Corinthians 12 and tells them, you don't understand, you're a part of the body. He has to do it in a very corrective way, in a very teaching way in Corinth. But here, it's an encouraging way in Philippians. He's saying, look, you're established, you're believers, it's people like us, but remember that you're in Christ Jesus If you're in him, you're a part of a body that is bigger than yourself. You live in the reality of the gospel that has united us together. Look into verse 2 and you see this. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. So this is a Greek term and, and word for grace, and it's a Greek version of the Hebrew word shalom for peace. Paul is greeting all people, even though this is predominantly not a Jewish culture he's writing to. He's putting these two things together This grace for the Gentile world, this peace for people with a Jewish or a Hebrew background, he's combining these things together, he's putting together, even in the language of the day, to help people understand that God is the God of all people. In those three words, grace and peace, he's actually doing two things that are deeply theological. One, he's saying that God is the father of all, of Gentiles that are now grafted in God's chosen people with these people, these Jews, who were to see and quite often failed to see who Jesus is and was. And yet God is the God of both. He's the God of all who invites all to himself in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing he says is that grace and peace, you'll notice if you look at the text, it is not from Paul. Paul doesn't say grace and peace from Timothy and I. What does he say? Grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that the origin of all grace and peace is from God himself. These people at Philippi would be, these believers in this Christian community, would not be without some peril and some attack from people in the local community who saw them as outsiders who saw them as people pledging allegiance to not the historical figures like they do, like the emperors that have come and gone, and even the current one, but instead claiming that all deity, all life, all love is in Jesus Christ himself. These people would be people that would be persecuted on many levels. For not revering Rome and not celebrating Rome and the emperor as primary, but celebrating Jesus as primary. And Paul's quick to say that the grace and the peace that you have, it doesn't come from this comforting letter from me. It comes from God himself. And then in these three words, Lord Jesus Christ, Paul does something incredible. That might look just like words that we're familiar with because we're going to see all these different constructs, not only in Philippians but throughout the New Testament, of of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus the Lord. Why does Paul use in this moment Lord Jesus Christ? He's doing something that's not only just in, in language clever but is powerful and is beautiful. You need to know that the people in Philippi would have revered and thought of, and there was a proper way, there was a formal way, there was a really one accepted way to describe uh, the emperor, the one who ruled not only Philippi, but Rome and all Roman provinces, and it would be described that person in this way, Emperor Caesar Augustus. It's this formal title with a personal name and a family name. There's purpose in it. And what Paul does here in saying the Lord Jesus Christ, he's telling believers, this is the formal way. He's using human language to say, this is actually the one who rules all things. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that is the true king and your redeemer. And look into verse 3, and you're going to see something um, really powerful. There's this sense of gratitude that just jumps off the page. Um, Now look, this one's easy for me uh, because I am, unfortunately, what you call a feeler. Um, I feel things all the time. Don't want to. Wish I didn't, uh, but it happens constantly. Uh, Some of you can't identify with this as well, all right? You only think. You have to have people tell you to feel, right? Like, you should feel something here. You should cry at this part. You should be happy. You can smile now. It's okay, right? Um, We need both in this world. Paul is both, I think, but in this moment... In verse 3 onward, you're going to see incredible emotion that really surrounds the gratitude that he has for all that Christ has done, not only for himself and for the church, but also, as a result, the gratitude that he now has for the church who partners with him in the gospel. Beginning of verse 3 Look down through verse 8 and onward and look at all the words and the emotion that's conveyed there. Paul describes thanks, joy. He says he feels this. It's right for him to feel this way about them, that he holds them in his heart, that they are partakers, that they're sharers, and that he yearns for them with the affection of Jesus. So Paul is describing in this first Christian community not their success, not what a great job they're doing, not how they're the first among Christian communities in this region and in this area. He's not celebrating all the things that they do. More so, he's describing in a very emotional way how he feels about them because of what Christ has done in and through them. This language, so often spiritually for us, is really hard. Like it's really hard for us to talk to one another. Um, I think we do this thing in life where all of us do this thing during the week where we feel like, man, I really want to call that person and tell them that, that, that whatever they said to me meant a ton to me. Like Some of you will experience it today. You'll go to community group at 1045, and somebody will say something. The Lord will use it to encourage you and give you hope and rest and peace, and you'll say, man, I, I, want, to, I want to affirm them. I want to encourage them. I want to tell them that, and you won't. And I mean that to be like really funny, but also like not funny, because we are people of good intentions. We desire to do it, we want to do it, but then we say, I don't really know how to do that. How do you, how do you tell somebody that they mean something to you spiritually without sounding totally nuts? Without sounding really weird, all right? And dudes, it's the hardest for us, okay? Okay. It's hard, to, it's hard often to go up to somebody and say, man, I just want to tell you how much I love and appreciate you. And look, I don't know the last time I had somebody say to me or I said to somebody, man, I, I get the affection of Jesus. I'm just yearning to tell you, brother. Right? In our world, that's strange. But not for Paul. Because the magnitude of what Christ has done. And uh, when I took English, Uh, and you did too, there was this thing that you and I were told never, ever, 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 ever to do, and it was to create this long-winded, terrible, hard-to-read, understand thing called a run-on sentence. Anybody ever do this? Where you just write, and it's basically like stream of consciousness. You just write and write and write, and there's no punctuation. Uh, It's kind of how, I think, at times, our children talk to us there's just there's just it's this and it's this and it's like so clover went to a party the other day and these people had a horse and its mane was painted like like all these different colors and it legit it was a unicorn like and it looked like very much like a unicorn and 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 we're toast because she believes now (laughs) and we're gonna crush her at some point uh and then the lord will bring her back um The way she described it was unreal. It's like they had a unicorn, and they had a petting zoo, and they, and they had this, and they had this, and they had this, and they had this. But there was it was just all just like one breath. Verses 3 through 8, if you look down at the at scriptures before you, if you look down at those words, if you see what's happening in verses 3 through 8, this is what you're going to find. It's all one sentence. It's all one sentence. Now, one, that's largely because this is the way that... the that greek writing typically worked there wasn't just immense amount of punctuation everywhere in the way that we kind of do that thing but also there is this real sense and where paul like can't stop getting this out he can't stop himself to say how much he feels for this group of people because of the gospel that has been experienced in that place and with other people who have grown into trust in Christ, the ministry that they've done with him in partnership with him, supporting him financially, we have history of that, not only back into Acts 16, but also into 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as well. All these pictures of the church at Philippi being supportive. When you see those Macedonian churches in Paul's writings, talking about Philippi, this place. There's this, all the this support. So Paul's also feeling, he's overwhelmed with this gratitude. Because Paul's not only ministering to them, because that's how we view apostles, that they're the ones ministering to all these people. This church has now ministered to Paul. And he feels it. And he's telling them in great detail and quickly and kind of a strange and wild way, without any punctuation, How thankful he is for them. It's because of their belief in the gospel, the life they have in the gospel, and the way that they live it out that we can see, as these words say, he truly has, in verse 5, a partnership with them. They've been drawn into the family of God and now have the purpose to live out the gospel in their character and their life so that others may come to know Christ. This is the biblical pattern of what it means... For the world to see Jesus and know that we are Christians by our love. Paul's describing evangelism and the result of what it means to partner together in the gospel. I don't know if you're like me, but quite often I wonder, how do I do that? How do I get to that place where my life is having a genuine impact? where I'm sharing Jesus with the world. Anybody in here that's like an expert at evangelism? We don't do that. As well, I think is probably the right way to say it, because we struggle to believe, quite frankly. You and I struggle to believe that we have the capability, the ability to share Jesus with the world. It seems like a fearful thing. It seems like a thing that would ostracize me from from people that I know, from people that I work with, from people that I go watch our soon-to-be state champion Chelsea baseball team with, right? Like all, like all, all of these people that I interact with in life, man, it's a scary thing to bring up our faith, to talk about what God has done in our life. I think one of the main reasons it feels scary is because we think it's on us. And I want you to see what Paul does in verse 6 to describe what's happening with the church at Philippi and quite frankly what should happen with all churches as we share the goodness of Jesus with the world. We come to this understanding that it's God who does the work. Look into verse 6. It's God who began the work in them, and he's the one that is going to bring it to, as Paul describes, completion, to bring it to fullness, to finish it. It's God's action that precedes the actions of these followers of Jesus. It's God's action that began their life in Christ. It's the work of the Spirit regenerating them. It's not them saying, you know what, I'm going to trust Jesus now. Yes, but only because of what he's done. It's only because of the truth and the reality of the gospel that the lives of these people have been changed. And now as a result of this, he's calling them to have this deep confidence to understand all of these things that Christ started in you, he's going to bring to completion. Here's where I think you and I struggle. We think, all right, Jesus saved me, and now the rest is up to me. You feel that. I know you feel it. That There was this moment where you trusted in Christ and, and he saved you and now you're trying to hang on. You're trying to stay saved. You're trying to stay at this place where you do all the right things to make sure you don't fall out of his good graces. Here's the thing. You can't. And more so than that, more so than just keeping you in a place The process of sanctification and growth in our life with Christ is such that all of the things that have been started will be brought to completion. And that's for every area of our life. Even our evangelism, even our loving of other people. So when he describes, when Paul describes his partnership in the gospel, what he's saying is this. You can be transformed continually as you press on and you trust in Christ because the one who started is going to finish it. And the one who starts that nudging of your spirit to have conversations with others to share the gospel, he's the one that's going to finish it. He's the one that's going to finish it. Paul would say in in 2 Corinthians that the the point is that some of us plant. You know this. That some of us water. Water. But that ultimately, who causes the growth? God himself. He's the one that brings all things to completion. So in a personal way, and in an evangelistic way, and in sharing Jesus with the world way, Paul's saying all of these things, everything is bound up in. God as the one who initiates all action and invites us in the opportunity to be a part of it. Truly, what's happening here is the invitation to believe in the gospel. One of the biggest things you're gonna see throughout the, the book of Philippians is that there's all of these places where Paul directs us toward things that were practical, that we've got to do, that we that we really are called to do. Not just it would be convenient if we did that, but that we're really called to do. You need to know that when Paul uses that word partnership, and even in the joining uh, that you're going to see in in verses 7 and 8, in the way he describes his relationship with them, he's talking about koinonia. He's talking about true, real community that Christians are inextricably like we are tied together in this deep way. We are truly united in Christ, but this is not just As a result, there's some things that we should do. The language is such that it is almost business and contractual-like in this day. He's saying that this is part of the process. We don't just take the Jesus we want whenever we want. Instead, all of us is bound up into him, and there are things that we've got to practically do as believers. But this is not works-based. The reality is that we can't do any of that stuff on our own. We do it in the power of the Spirit, and because it's God's action to us first. It's always God as initiator that calls us into the responsibility of trusting in Him, and it's Him who empowers us and brings it to completion even as we trust in Him. Looking at verse 7, that word feel that is used there, He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for your partakers of grace with me. And so here's what Paul says. Ultimately, let's kind of go backwards here. He says, both in my imprisonment and the fact that Paul's writing from Rome in an imprisoned way that's that's really unique. um, And we'll talk more about this next week as we look into verse 13 and on. But the situation that Paul's in is even in his imprisonment, he's able to communicate with other Christians other believers, he's able to write letters, he's able to correspond with folks, but he says, look, you're partakers of grace, we're together in this, and it doesn't matter the circumstance, even in my imprisonment and my defense of the gospel. And he also says, I hold you in my heart. So there's all these things that are really personal and powerful that are coming out. And he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. And all this emotion that comes through might be such that you think that, like, hey, maybe Paul doesn't have a lot of thought behind this. He's just feeling all this stuff, so he says it. But the background of this word in Greek is such that It means to think on something, to dwell on something so intently and so deeply that now it moves from just thoughts to actually feelings and emotions. What Paul is doing, what he's describing is is he's meditated on who these people are. And he's meditated on, he's seen everything that they've done, the way God has miraculously worked in them And he says, I can't help but be emotional and excited about this because of who you are, what Christ has done in you. All of that leading to, in verse 9, you're going to see what he describes as a prayer for them, this affectionate prayer. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So, So love and then knowledge and discernment coming alongside it. For the purpose of approving what is excellent, in verse 10, to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So love is the goal. And Paul says that there's a result of this love, this pure life, this blameless life. These people who are believers that on the day of Christ will be reflections of his righteousness filled with all of these things, this fruit he describes, all these things that demonstrate the very righteousness of God. How do you get to that place? How does that work? How does God do that in us? It begins with love. So to quote 1 Corinthians 13 it would be what? Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And what Paul's talking about in that moment is a unity love, a unity in the body of Christ. On the heels of these people who are abusing others at the Lord's Supper to the place that they're being taught in in chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 about what the body is, that they're a part of this body in which Christ is the head. Now in chapter 13, it describes what love looks like and he describes how it characterizes the Christian life so that they can live pure and blameless lives. The gospel is love. It starts with love, and it is God's action that always precedes ours. We think it starts with knowledge. I need to know these things, and then I can do these things. But there's this deep gospel truth that abounds in this text. I want to give you a quote from somebody who's done some substantial work uh, in Philippians and both Philemon. It's Carol Osick. Uh, This is from Abington's New Testament commentary. Uh, She writes this and kind of describes the way Paul orders this and why it's really unique and really important. She writes, We would expect knowledge to lead to love, but Paul puts it the other way around. It's their response to the love of Christ for them that will give them knowledge. Man, how do I live the Christian life? All of these things that seem too astounding to even capture, to be pure and blameless, to be filled with righteousness, that God would do that in me, that that would be my character. How do I get to that place? You live in response to God's love. This is truly where it starts for us as believers. That's super incredibly helpful for us to take all of the things that we see in the New Testament, the ways that we're commanded to live, and to heed those things. To live in a way that is morally exemplifying Christ. But we got to understand that the gospel is not, Go do this stuff. The gospel is, you can't do anything because of your sin and your brokenness. So the Lord comes to you. He is your righteousness. He is the one, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he's the one who restores us and enables us and empowers us to live holy lives. But that holiness starts with you recognizing that you're sinful, you need a savior, and you trust in Christ in view of the love that he has for you. It's out of that love that the knowledge of discerning his will, how to live, the decisions that we're faced with, how do we how do we how do we do what will be pleasing to the Lord? All of those things follow, Paul would write, love And then one more reminder to this group of people. Look at verse 11. Our righteousness is not earned. Instead, it comes through Jesus Christ. Our righteousness comes through Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's not something that we go grab or we earn or this level to which we ascend or this place that we get to. Christ is the source of all. Everything from and through Jesus in us as the Spirit works. So, in this passage, in this introduction, in just these short 11 verses, there's all of these things that are happening. This assurance of God's promise that everything He starts, He'll bring to completion. The challenge to live in a countercultural way to a world around you that would say, Where I'm from. And the power of the world is going to define me. Instead, live in such a way that you're a slave to Jesus Christ. Live in such a way that you are a slave to Jesus. That you would consider yourself unconsiderable in view of all that God has done for you. That you would make less of you because Christ has given you everything. So now it's not up to me and you to go find our identity, to create our identity. It's solidified in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And all of this is bound up in the reality that Paul is thankful. And so he expresses it in this really powerful way. Uh, I want to invite Paxton to come and, and... we're going to sing a song this morning truly of gratitude. And I want to take the opportunity with you this morning to invite you to respond in a unique way today. Um, I would say that, that what I mentioned and what you laughed at and what you acknowledged is true. True. We want to thank people, and we know that people have made a spiritual impact in our life. But they don't know because we don't tell them. It's just really challenging for us to actually tell them. In view of God's mercy, in view of all that he's done, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... Paul sets the example not only to be servants, not only to believe in the gospel, but also live a life that is filled with gospel gratitude. To be thankful for the people that have ministered the gospel to us, who truly shared Christ with us. Every time he goes to pray, he says, all the time, every time I go to pray, I can't help but thank God for you. I want to boldly say that I think there are, I know for me, I can say it for me, there are people that I look at in this room, and when I think of them, I thank the Lord for them. Because of how they've ministered to me, how they've shepherded me, how they've given me beautiful truth, how you faithfully, continually, for every moment I've known you, followed and loved Jesus. There are all these kinds of people in our life. And as Paul writes Philippians, you need to know this, you're going to see more and more language emerge that's going to show you, man. he's writing to these people, and yeah, they're his friends, but he actually considers them family. Again, feeler, all right? But here's the thing. We're family in Christ. We really, truly are. And I'd love for us this morning, and I want to challenge you to take a moment um, to extend some gospel gratitude to people in this room, people that you worship with here in this place that have impacted you, that have ministered to you. And so in the same way that we stood up a few minutes ago or at the start of this service and greeted one another, instead of thinking about the person that's in this room and saying, hey, I don't want to do it here and I don't want to do it now, but later in the week, I'm going to shoot him a text or I'm going to scratch him a note or send it to him or whatever. That's okay. But what if our act of worship this morning was to say, hey, look, I want to I be intentional and I want to be thankful in communicating with another believer, just as Paul does, about the impact that you've had on me spiritually. I know it's happened to you. I, I, in a few minutes, I will walk down up and I'm going to come and talk to a bunch of you who have ministered the gospel to me. And I'm going to thank you. And I want you to do that with your friend and with your neighbor as well. It might be somebody on your row. I would encourage you to take this moment to do this. Here's the second thing I would say You might be new here. You might be visiting for the first time. And you might say, I got nobody to, to go to. I got nobody uh, to thank. All right. So I met you guys earlier. You're, you're like, we're brand new. What do we do? All right. Here's what you do watch this family, watch the people of God love each other. And then the prayer and the hope would be that you would desire to be connected to this and come and continually be a part of this and experience that ministry. And also, just take that moment to pray and think, Lord, who would you call me to to encourage? To thank for the ministry that they've had in my life. So here's what I urge you to do now. Let's stand together. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to be silent for a second and briefly pray and then walk to a place where we can actually walk around here in this room and encourage each other and then Paxton and our team will lead us. Heavenly Father when we look at the reality of the gospel that all that you've done for us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you invite us to a place of deep gratitude where we thank others for the ministry that they've had to us. Father, I pray that in these moments, in this place, we'll be able to do that with one another. Father, if there are people here who, who we want to share that with, but they're not physically in this room, God, would you truly set it in our hearts to intentionally call or text or email them or find them later to do that? Father, And for, for those folks that are worshiping here that are new, God, I pray that they would see a family, a local body, a group of people who love one another. Because of what you have done in our hearts and lives, Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. So now, go find somebody. Tell me love. Them.